0: Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: I want to start out this hour by uh, putting on the board some, oh, you may as well call them structural parallels, or apparent structural parallels between Christianity and Islam so that you can line up with items from Christianity that you are familiar with, these uh, sometimes mysterious terms uh, that you read about in uh, works on Islam. In Christianity, obviously, we have scripture, we have tradition, we have a magisterium, commentary. And finally, you may say that we certainly have in Christianity our central claims. In other words, Christianity can be summarized in the form of a creed, yes? So let's let's put that up there as central claims or the creed. Now, the Islamic parallels to this are not so well-known to people beyond the very first. Obviously, corresponding to our scripture is the Muslim Quran. Well, there are other ways to spell it, K-O-R-A-N and so on, that are more domesticated, but this is the official transcription from Holy Arabic. Quran, you... Don't ask how you're supposed to pronounce that Q. It's not supposed to sound like a K. It's got to be done further back in your throat. But I don't want anybody (laughs) spitting up. It's hard to do. All right. Just as we hold that scripture is inspired and inerrant, containing divine revelation, so also Islam claims that the Quran is an inspired message from God, it is flawless, it is inerrant, it is the absolute central authority, it's God's last word to mankind. And Muhammad boasted that his revelation was shorter and clearer than all that other stuff, all the preceding books. Well, it's certainly shorter than the Pentateuch, it's even shorter than the New Testament. Quality is another story, but at least it's short. All right. Now, where we have tradition, and of course, tradition from us is the teaching of the for us is the teaching of the apostles, and we get evidence about the teaching and practice of the apostles from the early church fathers. Yes, think of Hippolytus of Rome who collected evidences of the apostolic tradition. Think of Irenaeus who reports on the apostolic traditions, and so on. So, for us, it's the early church fathers as witnesses to apostolic tradition. In Islam, tradition goes under the general name of Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A-H, the Sunnah. The Sunnah means mainly the tradition about the words and deeds of Muhammad. Now then, the Arabic word for tradition or handed down story is hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H. And you don't want to have to learn Arabic, because there are umpteen ways to form the plural, and the plural of hadith is ahadith, not hadithim or hadiths or something nice like that, but ahadith, let me put that down, A-H-A-D-I-T-H. The ahadith are stories about what Muhammad said and did, and also his immediate contemporaries, now, just as the Quran itself was only collected after Muhammad's lifetime and had been handed down orally for about 40 years, so also these traditions about what he said and did that, that weren't included in the Quran had to be handed down orally. But they were handed down for more like 300 years, no, 200 years until you get to the ninth century and the era of the great Hadith collectors, tradition collectors. And if you are a learned Muslim, you will turn to one of one, two, three, four impressive authorized tradition collections. The best known of them is the collection made by Bukhari, B-U-K-H-A-R-I. You can find, I I hope you don't have the money for this, but if you want to buy Bukhari, it has been put into English, you're going to have to shell out for about eight volumes. And the traditions are numbered from one up to about seven or eight thousand. These are the stories he collects. And he he grades the traditions as reliable, reliable, Um, dubious weak fake okay so I mean what can you say there was an effort there to weed out the genuine traditions from the fake ones along with Bukhari's work there was a guy named Muslim hello what a happy name M-U-S-L-I-M is the name of his collection then there was a guy named Al-Tirmidi who came up with another collection Then there was Abu Nadja, who came up with yet another collection. These are the authorized collections. So when you want to know tradition in Islam, these are the collections you have to read. Now then, let's come down to the magisterium line. You know what it is on the Catholic side. There's the Holy See, and there are ecumenical councils. And these are institutions, if you will, within the church that can give a definitive judgment on what is to be believed and how life is to be lived. So we have a magisterium that can produce a definitive judgment. Islam does not have that kind of institutional authority. The situation in Islam is much more like the situation in a large Protestant denomination, in which you would have a great many preachers, some more influential than others. Some preachers have big mosques. Some have little mosques out in the sticks. So some preachers are more influential than others. Some preachers are more famous for their learning than others. Some preachers are so learned they get jobs in universities. Yes? So it's, it's, it's that kind of situation. Uh, there is no final authority to adjudicate what is and is not. Um, Islamic belief, what you have to get is a consensus. And that is called the consensus of the learned and the body of scholars who preside over mosques, teach in Islamic universities and so on, that body of scholars is called the ulama, U-L-A-M-A. And as you probably know, uh, the ulama is not unified on many points of great interest to us. Is there a consensus, for example, among the world of Islamic scholars? Is there a consensus that suicide bombing is wrong, or even wrong under most circumstances? No, there is no such consensus. There are Powerful imams, influential imams who will say that this kind of conduct is authentic Muslim conduct, authentic jihad, morally good. When bin Laden struck the Twin Towers, there was a debate. Yes, there was a debate within the ulama was bin Laden's act acceptable as an Islamic act of war, or was it a criminal act, all right, you need to know that it was not a slam dunk or an open and shut question for these experts. It turned upon whether the people in the Twin Towers were really civilians What was the proportion of Muslims there? Now, if there were a significant number of Muslims in those Twin Towers, then Bin Laden would have been uh, guilty of reckless disregard for the life of believers. That would certainly be criminal. If there's a disproportionate number of women and children, that would make his act criminal because women and children are supposed to be captives, not killed. Eh? So it, the debate turns on what we would consider rather minor issues. Anyway, so much for the ulama. Now, I have next commentary. You may say that in Christianity, this is mainly theology, huh? This is mainly theology. Um, the commentary on the scriptures, on tradition on church pronouncements will be found in the works of the great followers of the church like Augustine, St. Basil, St. Gregory Nazianzen. It'll be found in the scholastic doctors like Aquinas Bonaventure, yes, and on down to later theologians like Suarez and so on. Well, in Islam, what you have rather is four Well, the word is madhab, Four ways of practicing the religion worked out by experts in jurisprudence. The body of commentary is not theological, it's jurisprudential. Can we put it just that way? And the jurisprudence, you can follow any one of these jurists and be orthodox, just as you can be a Thomist or an, a SCOTUS in theology and be orthodox. But here it's it's legislative matter. The the four theological or jurisprudential traditions in Islam are the Shafi'i, Maliki, Hanafi, and Hanbali. The result of their work, as I say, is jurisprudence. And there's a general name for Islamic law. These four schools are put together by the experts in Islamic law. And the general name for that law is Sharia. So these are four schools of interpretation, if you will, of the Sharia, which is Islamic law. S-H-A-R-I-A, Sharia. By the way, sometimes you see the same Arabic word with or without an H on the end. Don't worry about it. It's a letter which has become basically silent in dialectical Arabic. It was originally a T for the feminine ending, and then it became pretty much silent. So don't worry about it. Now then, this brings to light a first and huge difference between Islam and Christianity. Christianity is a revelation of the mysteries of God. His inner life as Trinity his taking on our nature, his original plan for the human race, this mysterious arrangement in Adam, the mysterious way in which the incarnation is going to redeem Adam's fall, the mysteries of his grace as it cooperates with our free will, and so on. Christianity is a revelation of God's mysteries. Is that clear to everybody? And so what Christian reflection and study Outputs is theology. Discussion of the mysteries, attempt to understand or clarify the mysteries, at least get clear where the mystery is exactly. That's what theology does. Islam, rather, is a revelation of the will of God, or pretends to be. It is a revelation of God's will. It's not about what He is, that's none of your business. God is supposed to so transcend man that there's simply no inquiring about him. Muslim theology, the talk about God seems to be very simple. I mean, beyond having said, look, there's just exactly one God and he's eternal, omniscient and omnipotent. That's it. There is not much more to say. But there's a tremendous amount to say about what God wants you to do. He wants you to pray. Uh, how? Pray facing what direction? Pray at what hours? Pray how many times a day? Pray right. using what words? And there's, wants you to, he not only wants you to pray, he wants you to make loans in a certain way. He wants you to marry in a certain way. He wants you to treat your wife in a certain way. So there's the revelation of God's will. That's what Islam purports to be. So its output is law, just as the output of Judaism is Talmud. Law. So it's law. All right. The Sharia. Interpreted in one of these four ways. That brings me down to the bottom of my chart, which was illegible when it started and has gotten progressively worse. At the bottom of my chart, it says central claims or creed. The Islamic equivalent of that is the five pillars. Oh, it gets worse and worse. The five pillars... Of Islam. Of these five pillars, only the first is a creed or creed like statement. It's very short. You must believe in the oneness of God, in Muhammad as his prophet, in the scriptures, in the angels, in the last judgment. There are just five or six articles, as you might say, to the Islamic creed the main ones are that there is just exactly one God and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the main thing. The second pillar is prayers, the salat, the prayers that are made five times a day, made made in in, in a prostrate position or kneeling, made facing Mecca, and made with certain standard formulas. Islam um, uh, is not like Protestantism at all in this crucial regard. Islam, you might say, is very liturgical. The prayers are nailed down. I mean, there's a definite form of prayer. You can't make it up. You can't improvise. And Islam does not emphasize, uh, you know, deep mental prayer or, you know, getting your heart into it. Islam emphasizes the right words at the right time. It's a... Mechanical, if you will, process. The third pillar of Islam is the alms, zakat. You have to give alms to the poor. You have to give alms to those in need. Um, Part of giving alms, I'm sorry to say, is also the support of soldiers fighting for the cause of Allah. If there's a holy war in progress, It's part of your almsgiving duty, assuming you can't go and fight yourself. You're too old, too young, too female, whatever. If you can't go and fight yourself, you have to contribute of your goods to the support of the army. The fourth pillar is the fast of Ramadan. One month, one lunar month out of the year. It is a rigorous fast during the daylight hours there's no food of any kind there's no not even water it's a rigorous fast during the daylight hours after sundown however you can eat and drink quite freely there's also no uh, intercourse between husbands and wives during the daylight hours of the month of ramadan but at night's okay all right and then the final the fifth pillar is the hajj the pilgrimage h a j j the pilgrimage if you are able to, at least once in your life, a Muslim is supposed to make the pilgrimage to Mecca. Now, those five pillars are very interesting Um, because they define what it is to be a Muslim. Um, If a person or a group of people believe in the oneness of Allah and the Day of Judgment, believe in the prophethood of Muhammad, believe in the angels, if they keep up the prayers, the alms, the fast, and perform the hajj, they are Muslims. They can believe things completely contradictory to the Quran or the words of any of the prophets and still be Muslim. They can commit any imaginable sin and still be Muslim so long as they fulfill the aforementioned items. In other words, terrorism, even if uh, a significant proportion of Islamic authorities finally decided, yeah, well, that Twin Tower thing, uh uh-uh, that was a no-no. Terrorism, even if it's condemned by the ulama, will not get you kicked out of Islam. There's no authority that can throw you out for that. You can't be anathematized or excommunicated unless you reject one of these pillars. That's it. One of these pillars. The Shiites are considered dubious, only semi-Islamic, because they quarreled with Muhammad's chosen successorites. But anything else, I mean, any, any, any uh, you know, particular area in which you want to raise a challenge to Islam, you, you can... You know, you can be a misbeliever in any number of ways. You won't get kicked out of Islam unless you abandon one of these five pillars. Now then, I want you to see how stupid is the term Islamic fundamentalist. The five pillars are the fundamentals of Islam. And since everybody, no matter how liberal or pacifistic, who counts himself as a Muslim at all, keeps up with the five pillars, you may as well say that every Muslim is a fundamentalist. So fundamentalism is the wrong term to use. It does not designate the kind of Muslim we worry about. Um, There was a guy in Egypt, for example, Mohammed Abdu, A-B-D-U-H, Abdu, died in 1905 who was by uh, our lights just the nicest kind of Muslim. He believed in introducing democratic ideas into Islam. He believed that Western constitutional forms of government had uh, you know, a grounding in the tradition because this, you know, early Islam practiced efforts to reach consensus and public opinion counter. He thought that these were an- remote ancestors of constitutional government. And he believed in um, a certain amount of freedom of religion. Well, he'd be strung up by the Muslim Brotherhood today. But the point is, he was the most liberal kind of Muslim uh, around, and he, he would count as a fundamentalist, because he kept all five pillars. Well, what's the description then for the kind of Muslim we're supposed to be scared of or should be scared of? Some people say, oh, well, that's easy. It's the Wahhabis. Okay, they're the scary guys. The Wahhabi movement is native to Saudi Arabia. It was founded by an 18th century preacher named Well, it's got a long name, but anyway, it ends with Abu Wahab. No, Ibn al-Wahab. Ibn al-Wahab. That's the end of his name. Never mind what came before. Ibn al-Wahab will have to do. W-A-H-A-B. Ibn (sighs) al-Wahab. By one of history's lovely ironies, the verb wahaba in Arabic means to love to give and to love. Well, Ibn al-Wahhab was not exactly a loving figure. He regarded the Arabians around him as insufficiently zealous in their Islam and began to conduct warfare against people who had just the, the least little pictures. I mean, some people sort of had devotions to Islamic uh, teachers who had died in what we would call the odor of sanctity, and, you know, there would be little pilgrimages to their graves to honor these guys. Oh, that was mushrik, That was idolatry, according to Ibn al Wahhab. So he wipes out all of these traditional practices. For some reason he got it through his head that having a minaret on a mosque was unacceptable. That's why there are no minarets on the mosques in Saudi Arabia today. All right. Ibn al-Wahhab emphasized the obligation of jihad, armed struggle in the name of Allah. Jihad is not listed as one of the five pillars of Islam. Just because it's not on the conventional list. But there is no question that jihad is recommended in the Quran, emphasized over and over again in the Sunnah, the traditions about what Muhammad said and did, and requires uh, you know um, very definite conditions. Now, the jihadists are the people who are currently fighting us in Iraq. They harbored uh, Bin Laden in Afghanistan. Bin Laden himself is sort of the arch jihadist. And the Saudi Arabians, unfortunately, are funding the teaching of the Wahhabi pro jihadist doctrine all over the world. There's a, a book that you can get, I mean, there's right here, there's an Islamic center in Northern Virginia. You can go there. You can get a book published in Saudi Arabia called Jihad, comma, the Forgotten Obligation. I recommend it's not long. It's scary, but it's not long. Anyway, Jihad, the forgotten obligation. Jihad is part of Islam in the same way that, let's say, visiting the sick or comforting the sick is part of Christianity. Now, notice my comparison. Not everybody visits the sick. I don't do all that many hospital visits. I, I suppose I should be ashamed of that, but it's not something I regularly do. Most Christians probably don't do it very often, but it is part of our religion when Christ spoke at the last you know in, in, the, in that famous picture of the last judgment in matthew twenty eight uh, where the sheep and the goats are assembled together, and you know I was sick and you visited me. Hmm? So it's definitely part of our religion, but it's not something that all of us do. You can say that there are groupings within Christianity that sort of specialize in it. Think of orders of nuns that run hospitals. They sort of specialize in it. Well, in just the same way, not every Muslim fights jihad, goes into it, wages war. But it is part of the religion. And there are movements in Islam that specialize in it. Now then, I'm going to get lynched if I compare the Wahhabis to the Franciscans. Because they're good at running hospitals and the Wahhabis are good at lopping off heads. That's a terrible comparison. But it's not bad if you want to understand how jihad relates to Islam. It cannot be detached from the religion any more than visiting the sick can be detached from our religion. And get this, it might go to sleep for a long time. Um, You know, I don't think there were too many Christians visiting uh, the sick in hospitals in the Soviet Union, which lasted for, what, 70 years or so, because they were under secular control and religious figures were not allowed in. I mean, you'd have to sneak in if you wanted to bring any kind of Christian consolation to the sick, right? It's the same in the U.S. today. Yeah, it could well be. And think of, uh, you know, visiting prisons. That's another thing. I was in prison and you, and you visited. You could, we could easily spend a long time living under a, uh, a secularist government that wouldn't allow us to have prison ministers. We couldn't get in. So we could easily have a situation in which that Christian practice died out for a long time. But as soon as we were free to do it again, I sincerely hope, the practice of visiting the prisoners and visiting the sick and so on would revive because it is part of our religion. It's one of the corporal works of mercy. Most things we're supposed to do, right? In just the same way, Islamic jurisprudence says you may not Practice jihad unless you have a reasonable prospect of success. Hmm? You have to have a prospect of success, otherwise it's ridiculous. It's throwing away lives now then. Why has jihad been sort of, I don't know, under the Persian carpet for, uh, under the rug for uh, almost 300 years? or for a long time, two to three hundred years, because the West was so powerful. We had all that technology. We had all that colonizing ability, all that wealth. We were overwhelmingly strong. We were invulnerable to jihad. Even that crazy Mahdi in the Sudan didn't want to attack Westerners. He was content to wipe out about 7 million blacks in the south of the Sudan before my hero, Earl Kitchener, put an end to his horrendous career. But anyway, um, there was no point in trying to raise jihad against the West. But then, um, after the First World War, the Saudi oil fields were opened up. Western money began flowing into... Arabian hands. Wealth began to accumulate in the Middle East. With wealth you can buy weapons. All right. All of a sudden there are regimes in the Middle East that have pretty modern weapons. Okay, And you know who's working on a bomb. Yes? And all of a sudden the prospect of victory looks good again. And Osama is simply one of the harbingers to To say, look, 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 times have changed. The advantages are on our side. Go to it, boys. Okay, now if anybody wants to ask me questions about this, I brought along an interesting volume here. Um, Years ago, um, the um, best Catholic scholars in France put together an enormous work called the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, the Dictionary of Catholic Theology. It's not like a Webster's Dictionary. It's like an encyclopedia. And there are articles in it on each you know, theological topic, and the articles are often 100 to 200 columns long. I brought along the volume that has in it the, vo- uh, the, uh, the article on the Quran. And I brought it along because that article documents the places where jihad is stated as an obligation in the Quran and we we can go through that anytime you like all right now then in addition to the five pillars you've got jihad as part of the religion really inseparable from it to understand why a thing like armed struggle would be inseparable from a religion. We've got to go back to the role that Muhammad played uh, in founding the religion. Here's a nice quotation summarizing the matter from an Islamic scholar called Hussein Nasser, Syed Hussein Nasser. If the contour of the personality of the Prophet is to be understood, he should not be compared to Christ, or the Buddha, whose messages were meant primarily for saintly men, and who founded communities based on monastic life, which later became the norm of entire societies. Rather, because of his dual function as king and prophet, as the guide of men in this world and the hereafter, Muhammad should be compared to the prophet kings of the Old Testament, to David and Solomon, and especially to Abraham himself. There it is. There is an Islamic scholar's judgment. How best to understand Muhammad? Who should you compare him to? Don't compare him to Jesus. Compare him to David or compare him to Solomon. A warrior king who also has strong religious convictions. Solomon, by the way, had even more wives than Muhammad, but we won't get into that. Because Muhammad is a ruler with an army at his disposal, you have to understand that the Islamic enterprise is a territorial enterprise It was about getting control of Medina and then Mecca and then Arabia and then outlying territories all the way across North Africa and so on. It is about territory. It's a territorial covenant. This is why Israel so sticks in the craw. Here you have non-Muslims, Jews, Living in Islamic territory and not as a subjugated people. Now, that's another big topic which I'm just touching upon now, so it's more about it later. You are allowed to live in Islamic territory as a Jew or a Christian as long as you accept the conditions of a subject group. It's called the DIMI status, dhimmi status d h i m m i, dhimmi. And we've made up this wonderful word, Thimitude. Thimitude, or dhimmitude, d-h-i-m-m-i-t-u-d-e-d, Dimitude. if you're prepared to submit to all that. The main thing is you have to pay a tax, a poll tax. But that's not all. There are lots more requirements that go on top of it. You have to dress differently from standard Islamic dress. Uh, you have to shave the front of your head, at least originally you did, so you could be easily recognized as a non-believer, uh, you had to uh, promise that you would never, never, never open your mouth in any way that could be con- construed as derogatory to the Holy Prophet Muhammad. You had to tread very carefully. All right. Just a couple of years ago in Pakistan, there was a man sentenced to death. He was, you know, it's been appealed a number of times. There's a man sentenced to death for allegedly alluding to Salman Rushdie's book. Uh, He was a Christian. He allegedly alluded to the book. He said he didn't. But anything that can be construed as derogatory to the prophet will get you arrested. So dimitude is not easy to live. It's it's like, you know, the the Star of David on the, the Jews in the ghettos in World War II. Well, the Jews in Israel are not living as dimmies; They're not in that status, but they're on Islamic territory. This is what sticks in the craw. Islam is not so much worried about Christians and Jews over here in the Western Hemisphere. That's never been Islamic territory. But Palestine became Islamic territory when conquered under Omar. And once... Territory is Islamic, it's never allowed to go out again. Now, when you have a territorial religion, it was not just a religion, but also a polity, an empire, you begin to get the point that there is no distinction in Islam between church and state. Never mind separation of church and state. I'm the kind of ferocious right-wing Catholic that doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. But I sure believe in the distinction. Constantine believed in the distinction. The Emperor Theodosius, good heavens, never mind the Emperor Theodosius. Henry VIII believed in the distinction between church and state. Because he never appointed himself Archbishop of Canterbury. He, he took over headship of the church in England in temporal affairs, not in spiritual affairs. Henry never proposed to be a cleric or a leader on church dogma. huh? But Muhammad is both. That's what you have to understand a caliph is. He's not only the king, he's also the Archbishop of Can- Canterbury. Where he's not only the Holy Roman Emperor, he's also the Pope. He's got both offices you can't distinguish. So this, it's really misleading to call Islam a religion. You may as well call it a polity with a religion. And what most infuriates Osama bin Laden is that the policy is divided these days. Because the caliphate was abolished in 1918. When the Ottoman Empire fell, that was the last caliph. Right now there is no caliph. And so there's no unity to the Muslim world. It's not one empire. This is what drives Osama crazy. He wants that status back as one polity. It's an empire with an army. And yeah, okay, a religion. Now then, I want you to think about Israel under the Old Covenant. Israel under the Old Covenant was also a territorial affair. Now, there is, of course, a distinction between the, the monarchy, which is House of David, and the priesthood, which is Aaron. But still, the Old Israel is a nation. It's not just a religion. It's also a nation. It had a territory. David had to defend it. Solomon tried to expand it. Okay. Now, when you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, you notice a pattern. When Israel is defeated, when things go badly, when the Assyrians come down like a wolf on the fold and the northern kingdom is eaten up, the prophets... Give the message that this disaster is a result of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Because of our sins, because the kings got into worshiping Baal and so on, the Assyrians have been brought down to uh, punish us. Okay? You find exactly the same pattern in Islam. Exactly the same pattern in Islam. Any Failure is diagnosed as caused by infidelity. We weren't Islamic enough. So the cure is always purer, more radical Islamism. The first great example of that takes me back to those uh, very high-flying caliphs whom I mentioned before, the Abbasids. Um, uh, Harun al-Rashid, al al-Mutawah. Why weren't they counted as rightly guided? Okay. Under them, two things happened. One was that all of this infidel learning was valued. Oh, and music. You know, lutes and ouds and tremendous music at court. Great work in art. All that aesthetic frivolity, as Khomeini would say. Much cultivated in Baghdad under those caliphs. But there was something else that happened as well. Islam began to lose in Spain. Aha. Yes. From the cave of Covadonga, these little remnants of Christian Spain began to fight back. The Reconquista was launched and for the first time in its history, the Islamic empire began to lose territory. This is a bad sign. We must be doing something wrong, said the imams, the religious leaders. All of those high-flying caliphs whom I mentioned not only imported Western learning, classical learning. They also favored a party of theologians who supported a little bit of philosophical common sense. These theologians were called the Mutazilites. They believed in bringing Greek philosophy to bear on the understanding of the Quran. So for example, when the Quran says Allah guides whom he wills and misleads whom he will. The Mu'tazilites insisted that could not mean that God predestined people to error. There has to be free will. So the Mu'tazilites were defenders of free will. And then another thing. They said, look, if there is exactly one and only one God, and God alone is eternal, and everything else is created, right? Then the Quran itself must be created. It's a created book. It's a created message. Now, nobody doubted that the paper copies of the Quran were creatures. But think of the message itself. The Mutazilites said it's a created message. Makes sense? Of course it does. These two teachings, free will and the created status of the Quran brought these high-flying caliphs into disrepute. There was a huge uprising against them. Because mainline Muslims insisted there is no free will, Predestination is absolute. And they insisted the Quran is uncreated. It is eternal. So after um, these caliphs supported the Mutazilite theologians and uh, sort of the, the Muslim laity, so to speak, and a lot of imams rose up against them, these high-flying caliphs instituted a persecution. And it got so, they began to lose it. Now, the last high-flying caliph that I mentioned was Harun al-Watik. When he died, his successor, a guy named Jafar, his successor reversed course throughout the Metazolites, stopped the persecution, made it official Islamic teaching that there is no free will. The Sunnis today maintain there is no free will. Only the Shiites think there's free will. And they threw out the idea that the the Quran is created. So now standard Islam accepts the uncreated status of the Quran. So you've got an eternal word. Don't you? Isn't that interesting? Think about our Christology. But of course they won't go there. Because these caliphs taught wrong under the influence of infidel philosophers. That is why we are losing in Spain. Concluded the Islamic world. And the result was a purge. The caliphate changed its character and the support for high learning culture and so on just absolutely dried up. No more al Hikmah, thank you very much. The next bout of it came at the time of the Crusades. Yes, Islam was not expecting the Crusaders to make any headway. But the first crusade did pretty well. It set up a Latin kingdom for a while in Jerusalem, right? Ha! We have failed. Why is Allah punishing us like this? Must be because we haven't been faithful enough. Once again, there was another purge. This famous Kurdish warrior was brought in, Salahuddin, Saladin, yes, to take over the, the charge of the military. Saladin is also a great rigorist uh, in the enforcement of Islamic regulations. Every defeat of Islam is followed by a demand for more rigorous practice. I, um, I hate to see some evidences of that among Protestant, Protestant fundamentalists. But I was just appalled when, um, you know, that fellow, the 700 Club guy, got on the, it, Pat Robertson got on the air and said, you know, I, I, ha- I have a feeling, you know, why those Twin Towers were attacked. It's like God withdrew his envelope of protection that he'd kept us in. He let those Twin Towers be, be, be bombed because of all the wickedness in this country, all them lesbians and things. <sighs> As you know, there was just a few years before 9 11, there was that horrible ferry accident in the Philippines. A couple thousand people went down in the ferry. See, there just aren't enough Protestant fundamentalists in the Philippines. Nobody got up and said, The ferry sank because of our sins, did they? Well, anyway, whenever Islam is in trouble, it's got to get more strict which means it calls upon its own tradition, its own legislation. The cry is always, back to Sharia. Back to the law. Back to Sharia. Now let me read you from the Muslim scholar Abdul Qadr Abdul Aziz. Quote, the perfection of the Sharia means... That it is not in need of any of the previous abrogated religions, Judaism or Christianity, or any human experiences, like the man-made laws or any other philosophy. Therefore, anyone who claims that the Muslims are in need of any such canons is considered to be a kafir, an idolater, a misbeliever. For he belied Allah's saying, quote, this day I have completed your religion for you, unquote. That's the Quran, Surah 5, verse 3. And he's saying, quote, your Lord is never forgetful. Holy Quran, Surah 19, verse 64. Equal in disbelief is the one who claims that the Muslims are in need of the systems of democracy, communism, or any other ideology without which the Muslim lived and applied the rules of Allah in matters that faced them for 14 centuries, Unquote, Abdulaziz. Sharia is so perfect, it doesn't need supplementation from any outside source whatsoever. And he quotes two verses from the Quran to make this case. Allah says, today I have completed your religion for you and I didn't forget anything. So everything mankind needs to know is in the Quran or the Hadith. It comes out in the wash. It gets incorporated into Sharia. Sharia needs no supplementation. Please note what that means. That means there is no room for natural law. There is no room for an extra that is to say, outside of Islam, moral law that people would know thanks to their common human nature. There's no room for accumulated political experience. This is why there is no such thing as Islamic political philosophy. We have political philosophy. We've been arguing about it for a long time. we got monarchists and constitutionalists and Uh, you know, Aristotelians in their approach to political philosophy. and We've got Locke, lovely debates about this stuff, libertarians and traditionalists and so on. It's wonderful. And we try to build upon the political experience of our past. We don't think all of the answers are there to be mined out of the Bible. We don't think it's evil to read Locke. We don't think it's evil, evil even to read Montesquieu. Good grief. Because you are allowed to draw upon outside human experience. But in Islam you are not. It's all in Sharia. You must not bring in anything. So there's no room for accumulated political wisdom, constitutional wisdom. There's no room for natural law. So there's no outside authority to set any limits on how arbitrary Islam can be in its treatment of dimmies. Um I have a quote. Unfortunately, I forget what page it's on. And I'm not going to try to find it now. But the quote is from the Iranian ambassador to the UN. This is a couple years ago. The Iranian ambassador to the UN said, "The very concept of human rights is a judeo-christian invention. It has no place in Islam." So it's no good saying, oh, oh, gosh, imams, I mean, you, I mean, you, you, you really got to soften up some of those laws in Saudi. We got human rights now. They don't acknowledge them. They don't share any philosophical common ground with us on which human rights could be defended. This is what makes Islam desperately dangerous. I'm going to close with a quotation. This one I can find. This is from a very radical Muslim uh, cleric, Sayyid Qutbah. Starts with the Q. Q U T B. Qutbah. You pronounce it if you can. His dates are 1906 to 1966, so he didn't die all that long ago. He said, in an ideal polity, it is God and not man who rules. God is the source of all authority, including legitimate political authority. Virtue, not freedom, is the highest value. Therefore, God's laws, not man's, should govern society, Unquote. When I teach this unit to my students, I start with that quote. And I say to them, is there anything wrong? I don't even tell them who said it. Is there anything wrong in that quote? I don't see anything wrong with it. I think that God and not man is the source of all authority. Romans 11.1, 1, huh? I think that legitimate political authority rests on, and I also think that virtue and not freedom is the highest value. Of course, I think that freedom has a lot to do with securing certain virtues, but that's another story. So, if all of this quote is stuff we could say, what's the difference between Sayyid Qutb and us? All the difference in the world. When we say this, the sentiments in this quote, we are speaking from a tradition in which God allows his authority to be built upon a philosophical foundation in ethics and in politics so that the rule of our God is a humane pro-civilizational rule whereas when Sayyid Kutbah says this it is dangerous it means that when his ideal polity is here You will have no rights whatsoever beyond what Sharia says you have. And then you better pray you're not a nine-year-old girl. And you better pray you're not any kind of woman. And you better pray you're not a Christian. And you better pray you're not a Jew. Maybe you better even not be a Shiite. Thank you very much.
0: Pray for us.